Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorna. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and also on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Amanda Machaka and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the summer, South Africa State Capture Inquiry marks one-year anniversary, Search for missing South African teachers continues in Vietnam and Kenya to count intersex persons in upcoming census. In economics news, IMF warns Zimbabwe against boosting wages for state workers. And in sports news, South Africa's Amajita prepare for opening match at the All-Africa Games. But first up, the news with Ed Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Militants have killed at least 10 soldiers and wounded many others in an attack on a military unit in northern Burkina Faso. Militant violence has overrun Burkina Faso this year and armed forces have been unable to contain the situation. Hundreds of civilians have died and more than 150,000 others have fled as the influence of militant groups with links to Al-Qaeda and ISIS spreads across the Sahel region. The death toll in an incident in which a fuel tanker crashed into three vehicles and exploded in western Uganda has now risen to 22. Police say the incident occurred at the Kuyambura Trading Center, a mountainous area near the Queen Elizabeth National Park on Sunday night. The incident led to multiple explosions that also burned 25 small shops. Leon Sinyange has more. Most of the victims suffered burns as they tried to save their property, but also save their friends who were caught up in the fire. So most of these people were rushed to different health uh, centers within the area and far away. Many of those who died from the inferno uh, were burnt beyond recognition. So police is now appealing to relatives uh, and to those uh, they believe lost their, lost their people in this fire to come up uh, for a DNA profiling. But there are fears that some of the bodies may never be identified. The incident comes more than a week after a fuel tanker exploded in Tanzania. The fireball engulfed a crowd thronging to collect petrol from the wrecked vehicle, leaving 95 people dead. Zimbabwe's former Vice President Pele Gazela Mpoko has fled from anti-corruption questioning after he was summoned over alleged criminal abuse of office. 79-year-old Mpoko, who served under long-time ruler Robert Mugabe, was due to arrive at the police station in Bulawayo, the country's second city, to record a statement on the allegations on Monday. However, he drove off as soon as their officials from the Zimbabwe Anti-Corruption Commission approached his car. The commission says Mpoko is now a fugitive. The embattled leader of Hong Kong has announced the immediate establishment of a platform for dialogue to hear what the people want to say. The announcement came after weeks of protest. Lam also said a fact-finding investigation into police violence will be set up by the Independent Police Complaints Commission. This is something that we want to do uh, in a very sincere and humble manner. I and my principal officials are committed to listen 
to what the people have to tell us. And we want to reach out to the community as soon as possible. Meanwhile, social media networks, Twitter and Facebook, have taken steps to block what they described as a state-backed Chinese misinformation campaign designed to sow discord in Hong Kong. The BBC's Dave Lee has more. Twitter said that they were uh, seeking to undermine the uh, political intent of the protesters in Hong Kong. And so as well as those 936 accounts that have been found and and suspended by Twitter, Twitter said they also found an extra 200,000 accounts, which were much more nonsense accounts, but they were being used to amplify what those main accounts were posting with regards to what was been happening in Hong Kong. And then Facebook, off the back of that, they said they received a tip-off from Twitter that some similar efforts may be taking place on Facebook. And in response to that, Facebook removed seven pages, three groups and five Facebook accounts. And that's the news. Headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. South Africa's International Relations Department says it's providing consular support to the families of two South African men who have gone missing in Vietnam. 22-year-old John Bothma from Johannesburg and 28-year-old Mushfik Daniels from Cape Town went missing in May and July, respectively. They were both teachers in Vietnam. Humanitarian organization The Gift of the Givers is also assisting the families in their search. Tandiswa Mao reports. Mushfik Daniels has been teaching in Vietnam for the past two years. A few weeks ago, he went missing, prompting his mother Fahima to travel to Ho Chi Minh City in search of him. But as yet, there's been no leads to his whereabouts. He's been to six different police stations, and we haven't had anything from him. In fact, he was thinking of starting all over again and going back to the police station. We followed all the leads that we could. Absolutely nothing. We, we are sitting here and not knowing which way to go. Fahima says she's confident her son will be found alive. She says he might have suffered a breakdown in memory loss, which could explain why he has not contacted the family. I feel, I feel that he is alive and I feel that he is somewhere and I feel that he might have had a breakdown maybe. Possibly, maybe a loss of memory, that's why he can't get back to us, but a lie. And I don't want to give up on that. 22-year-old John Botma, also a teacher, went missing in May. Fears are mounting about the safety of the pair. Gift of the Givers founder, Imtia Suleiman, says they are in the process of bringing in government entities to assist in the search for the missing teachers. They are probably in captivity somewhere in Vietnam, and we need an investigation to try to find them ASAP. Now I'm going to talk to the police services and um, request their intervention with the state security. In fact, the Bekitelli's office has already called us to ask us what assistance we require. International Relations spokesperson Clayson Monella says government is receiving updates from Vietnamese authorities. We have been maintaining contact with them to update them as and when we receive it from the authorities in Vietnam. As you can appreciate, our embassies don't have the capacity to investigate such matters. It's the law enforcement agencies 
in this case of Vietnam that are doing the actual search and investigations and they update us as and when there's new information and we pass it on to the family. Despite the lack of information on the pair, their families are hopeful they will get the good news they are hoping for. That report by Tandiswa Mao. Three of the four men accused of killing Gabsile Shabani, who was living with albinism, and her one-year-old cousin, Ngosikona Ngwenya, in South Africa's Mpumalanga province, have pleaded not guilty to the eight charges leveled against them. Tokozani Msibi, Knowledge Mklanga, and Brilliant Mkize pleaded not guilty to the charges. Only Temba Tubane pleaded guilty. The four appeared at the High Court Division sitting in Middleburg. Landiwe Lamini reports. The Jampak court heard how Kabisile Shabane with albinism and her 15-month-old cousin Goskonangwenya were abducted in the family house in Lalaniga Lemalatheni. The gruesome details were laid bare at the court by one of the accused, Temba Tubane. Tubane, who pleaded guilty to the seven charges against him, submitted a confession statement pleading to the court to have mercy on him. According to Tubane, him and a business partner from Pretoria wanted to fortify their business, which was struggling. Tubane says co-accused knowledge Mlanga introduced them to a traditional healer, Togozani Msibi, who's believed to be the mastermind. He says Msibi advised them to get a person with albinism to perform the necessary rituals. Mlanga told the court that they traveled around Tuanen Pumalanga looking for a person living with albinism until Msibi invited them to a Malasheni where the crime took place. Tubane also says it was on the 27th of January last year when Msibi took them to the victim's house during the night. They broke inside the house and abducted two children after threatening their parents. Shabane's mutilated body was found buried at a shallow grave in Kalinen, east of Pretoria. Gwenya's body was found on the side of the N4 highway. Tubane told the court that Msibi ordered the 15-month-old child to be thrown into a sinkhole but was later dumped into a stream. Meanwhile, Judge Sehupu Chimpatlele has separated Tubane's matter with the three other accused. She has postponed the trial of the three other accused to May and June next year. The three are facing charges that include housebreaking, murder, kidnapping and violation of a corpse among others. Temba Tubane is expected to be sentenced on Tuesday. That report by Landiwe Lamini. An extraordinary session of the DRC National Assembly has begun preparations to inaugurate the country's new government. A DRC Prime Minister, Sylvester Ulunga Ilungamba, could announce his long-awaited cabinet sometime this week as the suggestion list has been harmonized. Januel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. The extraordinary session has been called while members of parliament were busy spending their holidays in their strongholds. The National Assembly Speaker, Janine Mabunda, then called them to interrupt their holidays and come back here in Kinshasa in order to inaugurate the government as it might be released any time this week. Patrick Muyaya is an MP from the Common Front for the Congo. It's an extraordinary session, as I previously announced, because you know uh, we are awaiting the coming government. I think this extraordinary session was requested by the president to security. The main point we're going to talk about is the, the inauguration of the new government. So we can take the time to make some of discussion to fix some parliamentary issue, but the main subject will be the inauguration of the government. 
The extraordinary session will take two weeks in order to allow MPs not only inaugurate a new government but also discuss about other important matters for the benefit of the Democratic Republic of Congo's people. But this might be very disturbed by candidates who were initially declared to have won parliamentary elections before they could be invalidated by the same constitutional court that declared them as MPs before. All of them have come together in an association and have announced that they will be attending this extraordinary session, although they are not allowed to. Jean-Marie Kabengera is the association coordinator. MPs are determined to sit according to the constitutional court's ruling to which no appeal is allowed and have realized that there is no legal obstacles. That's why we stopped our holidays to come and attend this extraordinary session to inaugurate the Ilungamba government to be shortly released. The constitutional court is the highest judiciary institution here in the Democratic Republic of Congo and it's only MPs who have been recognized by this court who can be allowed in. That's indeed what this common front for the Congo's MP Patrick Muyaya told Channel Africa. The Constitutional Court published the final list of member of parliament. It dismissed most stands to the National Assembly and those who can attend this extraordinary session must be in that list because in Congo the Constitutional Court is the letter which can confirm who was elected or not. And for those colleagues who have been invalidated, they are certainly in a political action. I'm not sure they will be considered as empty anymore because the Constitutional Court ability to decide who's going to sit in Parliament for the five years make his decision already. The National Assembly's session to inaugurate Prime Minister Sylvester Ilunga Ilungamba's government has come while people here are already tired of waiting for the government to be released. And according to this analyst from the University of Kinshasa, people have lost patience and believe there is nothing good to expect. John Smith Yancey. What is happening to the National Assembly? I think that uh, even though they publish the government, nothing will change. Because since they started talking that they will uh, give the government to the nail, never is changing. Even though they give it, never will change. It seems like they are joking with people. Nothing will change. Even though the government, they are talking about government, we know what is happening in our country. They don't have the heart for the population. That's the problem. It will be difficult for Muslims to build this country correctly or to work good for the Congolese people. They were looking for the power, but now they got in their hands. But they have to do something to show people that they have got the law for this country. They have to work hard for the Congolese people. That's what I can say. Members of parliament are meeting here from this Monday, August 19th up to September 7th. This session is only for the National Assembly and not for the Senate. Jean-Noël Bamoise for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Let's go back in time to today in 1994. After the 94 national elections, South Africa's President Nelson Mandela paid his first official state visit to neighboring country Mozambique. That's today in history in the year 1994. 
South Africa's State Capture Commission marks a full year of hearings into allegations of fraud and corruption in the public sector today. The inquiry was established following the recommendations by then Public Protector Tulima Donsela for a Judicial Commission of Inquiry to be set up to investigate former President Jacob Zuma's dealings with the Gupta family. This led to the instituting of the Zonda Commission of Inquiry tasked with investigating allegations on state capture in South Africa. Looking at the highlights of the commission since it started, Nomalizo Mandela filed this report. Although it was proclaimed in January 2018, the State Capture Commission sitting began in August of the same year. This was because a lot of work, such as building a team by the chair, interviews with witnesses, choosing investigators and sorting of information by the legal team had to be done. It quickly became clear that the initial scheduled time of six months would not be enough and a further 18 months was then set aside for the inquiry to finish its work. The commission came into being as a result of complaints to the public protector that cabinet appointments were being influenced from outside the presidency. Former Deputy Finance Minister Mtobisi Jonas made the initial revelations. Members of the Gupta family offered me the position of Minister of Finance to replace then Minister Nene. I rejected this out of hand. The basis of my rejection of their offer is that it makes a mockery of our hard-end democracy, the trust of our people, and no one apart from the President of the Republic appoints ministers. One of the highlights of the commission has to be the testimony by former COO of Bosasa, Angela Agritzi, who spent the longest time on the stand, giving a total of 11 days of testimony. With much of the reported state capture focused and linked to the Guptas until then, Agritzi revealed that the issue was far wider. In a detailed affidavit, Agritzi outlined how ANC leaders were paid bribes by facilities company Bosasa, including regular monthly payments made to prominent MPs such as Vincent Smith and former Environmental Affairs, Water and Sanitations Minister Nomvula Mukonyane. Agrizi testified that besides 50,000 rands a month, his boss Gavin Watson ensured a list of goods and services were delivered to Mukonyane and the ANC. It was 120 cases of cold drinks, 4 cases of high quality whiskey, 40 cases of beer, 8 lambs, cut up obviously, 12 cases of frozen chicken, 200 kilograms of beef in various bribe packs, and then numerous cases of premium brandy and some speciality alcohol. I would get a list, as a matter of fact. Um, a PA would phone me with that. There were numerous catering for rallies on instruction. For instance, um, the election campaign was run from the offices. We had to arrange all of that. Political analyst Stephen Friedman says this was a perfect example of the fact that the terms of reference of the commission are not limited to only investigating the Guptas. There's nothing in the commission's terms of reference which says it must investigate the Guptas uh, only. Uh, And the Bosasa evidence was very important because it reminded us as South Africans of something that we tend to forget, uh, that the Guptas are only uh, one uh, group of people who are doing this. Uh, It reminds us that this is not just one family or a couple of companies. It's a very serious problem which is damaging our politics and which we need to fix urgently. Another highlight was the testimony by the former president, Jacob Zuma. In his five-day testimony, Zuma dropped a number of bombshells, including telling the commission that former minister Nwako Ramaklodi was a spy and that former communications minister, General Sipiwe Nyanda, had links to the apartheid intelligence.
After the former president presented evidence for three days, proceedings were adjourned after his legal team accused the commission of having brought him there under false pretenses. Now I need him to make up his mind whether he wants to be cross-examined because it's clear, it's just been confirmed, he's being cross-examined. All I'm asking, Chair, because I advise my client to respect this process, come here, cooperate with it. I want him to consider that position because I think I advised him in in bona fide, but I do not think I was right. However, Zuma was not the only witness to test the Commission's rules and procedures. The likes of Mzwanele Mani complained about evidence leader advocate Vincent Maleka's seemingly prosecutorial star, asking initially that Maleka recuse himself. The applications of former SARS Commissioner Tom Moyane and former Enterprises Minister Lynn Brown to cross-examine Pravin Godan respectively also provided an opportunity for Commission Chair Judge Zondo to clarify the inquiry's rules. Friedman says this shows the lack of understanding of how commissions work. I think one of the problems the commission has is that there isn't a great understanding of how commissions work in a situation like this. People tend to think that the commissions are like a court case. That's not how a commission works. A commission hears evidence from people who are involved. Uh, And if you feel that you've been wronged by things that people have said at the commission, uh, your course of action is to ask the commission to appear before it to put your side of the story, which has been done. So I don't think it's hindered their work. Uh, It's highlighted the fact that there are people who very much don't want the commission to do its work. Uh, But that was obviously expected. It is reported that more than 541 notices have been issued to implicated parties since the commission began and that no single subpoena has been issued. It's also understood that some cabinet members and former parastatal bosses who have been implicated have yet to come forward. Friedman says it is likely that the commission's recommendations will include holding officials accountable for some, if not all, the wrongdoing. If you listen to some of Judge Zondo's questions, I mean, he's clearly interested in a, in a more broader sense of accountability. So he's interested in you know, what happens to prevent politicians uh, holding officials accountable. Um, so he's made it quite clear that he wants more evidence on that topic. Uh, and it's quite, ev- quite clear that there will be recommendations and there will be findings on that topic. The commission is expected to finish its work next year, March, while witnesses' oral evidence is expected to be done by December. Witnesses still expected include President Cyril Ramaphosa, the ANC, former Correctional Services Commissioner Lindam T, and former MEC for Agriculture in the Free State, who is currently chairperson of Parliament's Committee on Transport, Musebin Zizwane. That report by Nomalizo Mandela in Johannesburg. It is 7.22 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Commission of Inquiry into Allegations of State Capture in South Africa officially turns a year old today also known as the Zondo Commission. The public inquiry was launched by the government of Cyril Ramaphosa in August 2018 to investigate allegations of state capture, corruption, fraud and other allegations in the public sector, including organs of state in South Africa. It is headed by Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo. Most testimonies given to the inquiry have focused on allegations of corruption during the administration of former President Jacob Zuma. To discuss this further, we have on the line Valencia Talane from Corruption Watch. Good morning, Valencia, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. 
Hi, Lily. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Valencia. What do you make of the work of the Commission? It's a year later. Any achievements so far? Sure, it has been quite a, a journey. Um, um, the, the first few months of last year were a bit slow in terms of um, the number of witnesses who came through, but it's really gained in terms of momentum over the past few months of, of this year. And it has been quite a revealing exercise, um, revealing in terms of um, the level of alleged corruption that, that uh, witnesses have brought forward. How basically, an insight, great insight into how the country was was run and how, how perhaps um, uh, state institutions were being uh, basically manipulated to to serve um, the ben- uh, to benefit a few people so yeah it has been quite a journey uh, and we uh, i suppose we, we can only expect more explosive stuff to come up now, when I think about, uh, you know, some of the testimonies, uh, you know, big highlights we were, were Agrisi of uh, Bosasa. What are some of the testimonies that have stood out for you as a corruption watch? I think the most revealing has been, of course, uh, uh, Ms. Agrisi's testimony was great for getting us to get a sense of uh, how pri- the private sector gets to, you know, how, how much of the uh, state's public um, uh, procurement bill goes to them. However, um, most important, I think, would be testimony from former members of the executive, former ministers, people who who were close enough to power and who would have um, shared issues of how their own authority was undermined, either whether by the former, allegedly by the former president, Mr. Jacob Zuma, or other um, members of the executive, member, uh, people from the public sector who would have undermined that authority based on how um, they were, they were um, um, basically, uh, I'm, I'm sorry about that. No, that's uh, fine. But how, uh, how they would have, how, how their authority was undermined and how, um, the, 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 the mandate that they were given in terms of the constitution was undermined as well. The values of the constitution within their ministries and all of that. So this would be your pe- people like your, the former minister of public enterprises, Barbara Hogan, former minister of minerals, mineral resources, uh, Mr. Marco Ramasudi. Uh, you know, people were instrumental in 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 how cabinet made decisions uh, about really important projects of the country, but uh, were basically undermined from what they they have shared with the commission. Now, the Institute for Security Studies and uh, Corruption Watch made a joint submission, uh, which was on the 19th of June, where it was found that the organized crime flourished under former President Jacob Zuma's presidency as uh, South Africa's criminal justice agencies were, um, as we've touched on, manipulated for political and personal gain. Can you tell us about this and, uh, you know, what what, uh, um, its finality was? Um, as far as we are aware, um, the submissions are still with the commission, and we have yet to to receive any responses as far as what what shall be done and at what point in the process they will be entered into, uh, if at all, uh, into the process. 
Um, however, part of the part of the recommendations that uh, the joint submission has made has been that there be, be greater transparency in, uh, in relationships between members of the executive and leadership of the criminal justice system and anti-corruption bodies. So basically, um, as opposed to, you you have heard yesterday's testimony of, or, or rather his earlier testimony, which he touched on yesterday, the former head of the NPA, Mr. Nkolisin Masana, saying that how he was approached, um, how he was appointed was that he was literally um, approached by uh, the former president's legal advisor, Mr. Michael Haney, to say, look, uh, a few colleagues of yours in the legal fraternity have recommended you, and so uh, we'd like to, the president would like to chat with, with you and see if you're available for this position and to basically discuss what it would entail. Now, if that's anything to go by, we are not, um, we, back in the, uh, at that point when he was appointed, we were not looking at how um, the transparency element of how such an important role is being put in in in, in place. Uh, a person who's not uh, publicly vetted, as would have been the case with um, the current head of the NPA and and uh, the current public protector, you, as you will have noticed in, the, in those processes. So what we're saying is this transparency in transparency transparency in how they are appointed and transparency in how uh, decisions are made in terms of big issues, uh, especially if they're going to be handling uh, serious corruption um, cases that, that have an impact on, on, on the, rest of the, uh, the rest of government and how the state is run. Furthermore, um, how, how instructions are drilled down from the ex- members of the executive pairs for, to 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 the very leaders of the criminal justice system. Um, if the army is to be deployed to the Western Cape, what informs that? What 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 um, study has been done to say that in 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 doing so we will be able to curb um, crime and 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 bring it down, and also. Uh, Basically, the the South African Police Service uh, taking us into their confidence as members of the public and let us, letting us know how it is that they are curbing corruption in the country, as opposed to just uh, having corruption be one small element of the of the annual crime stats uh, uh, that they that they release every year. Let it be known what it is that. Um, um, in terms of corruption cases, what is being done, who is being prosecuted, who is being... Valencia, I have to cut you off there. Valencia, sorry, I have to cut you off there very quickly. We have run out of time. Um, Just in wrapping up, what are you hoping should happen to those implicated in state capture? I would imagine that uh, a lot of South Africans are hoping that uh, there shall be successful prosecutions and hopefully convictions in the future, if not for anything else, to, 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 to um, get people to, to see that government is really serious about curbing product, uh, corruption and, and not um, allowing rogue elements within its um, structures. Valencia, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now. That was Valencia Talani from Corruption Watch joining us on the line. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines militants have killed at least 10 soldiers and wounded many others in an attack on a military unit in northern Burkina Faso. Zimbabwe's former Vice President Pele Gezela Mpoko has fled from anti-corruption questioning after he was summoned over alleged criminal abuse of office. And the embattled leader of Hong Kong, Kari Lam, has announced the immediate establishment of a platform for dialogue to hear what the people want to say. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you, and it is 7.32 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Four friends in South Africa have committed to a grueling 2,000-kilometer endurance charity cycle tour to raise awareness for Alzheimer's, the most common cause of dementia. The team hopes to generate exposure and decrease the stigma around the mental condition while raising funds to train caregivers that can assist those in low-income communities that would otherwise be unable to access vital nursing care. They start their journey this Saturday at a Bridge border in the Limpopo province and ending in Cape Town in September. For more on this initiative, we are now joined on the line by one of the riders, Simon Clayton, a business development manager at Flight Center Business Travel. Simon, good morning and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, Lily. How are you? I'm very well, thanks, Simon. I'm just thinking this is a very grueling task, cycling all the way to Cape Town. What prompted you to embark on such a journey? It was actually quite a funny story. I was just riding around the cradle and with a friend of mine, and we saw a gentleman on the side of the road who looked like he was battling quite a bit. And he had a puncture, and literally I just stopped, started chatting to him. And this was in August last year, and we became very close friends. And now we are, he just told me about his father and his story. And then I said, you know, my dad's also struggling with dementia. And he said, let's go and cycle across the country because his dad did it many years ago. And I said, I'm very keen to try and create more awareness around dementia in South Africa. Now, obviously, you have a personal story with dementia. Can, can you just share with us some of the experiences of having to take care of a person um, with this mental condition? I think it's it's very difficult to be honest with you as we've I haven't really had enough support in terms of people communicating about this disease that my dad is struggling with. It's more about maybe we were feeling embarrassed and I really wanted to get the word out there after meeting Lau and trying to tell my story. And in doing so, as you can see now, this has really developed into something that we, no one should be shy about to speak about. We need to start talking about this and you start helping each other, hearing other people's stories. So basically in the years, in the year, my whole life has changed from being secretive about my father to now encouraging others to talk about what's happening with dementia in South Africa. Now, the, the makeup of your team, have they also been touched by dementia? And, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, what we, there isn't much information about dementia, um, you know, whether it's, it's uh, out there and people don't really know about it. It's just uh, uh, described as a mental condition without really going into detail. 
You yes, have experience I, of it. Um, the people, the part of the team that makes up your team that is going to be cycling with you, what are their experiences? I'm sure you've been sharing stories with regards to how you've been dealing with it and, you know, and, and how it's helped in some areas and not been so great in certain areas. Yeah, that's correct. So I'll just give you a quick background. So Lyle and Stu and those, the brothers, their dad passed away a year ago from, from dementia. Um, and then... And our other mate Gareth, he's also he's come on the ride. He actually hasn't got any any direct effect with dementia, but he's great mates with Struan, and he just wants to be involved in this awesome adventure. And then we have Elizabeth. She does the operations, and she her dad is currently suffering from dementia, which is also very tough for her. And so she's come on board. And then Bronwyn, which is Struan's wife, she's also assisting with the marketing side of things. Now, you know, just uh, in terms of this uh, initiative, what are you hoping to achieve? Obviously, on a personal level, it will be a great achievement. But um, just to put it out there and for people to know more about dementia, is this what you're hoping to achieve? Is this the goal? So the basic goal from from our side is we're driving across the country and going to different areas where people aren't suffering from dementia. So in rural areas, we've got townships, we've got people who don't understand what is happening to their loved ones. And we find that um, in these areas, you know, some people are being subject to uh, being mismanaged, they're being maybe abused. And we want to change this. We want to uh, train caregivers, which cost 2,000, 5,000 rand throughout Summer's essay. We want to deploy them into these areas, educate the communities, and really try and slow down and stop what is happening to the elderly people in these areas. And are you considering making this initiative an annual an annual cycle tour? I think that would be that would be the plan. And I'll be honest with you, it's probably this is probably the hardest thing, you know, bringing about eight of us together and trying to do something like this. And it's you know we've got our own jobs, we've got our own families to look after. But I mean, we are so passionate and proud of it. Even with all our internal dramas that we go through. We are going to achieve something amazing when we finish this ride. And then definitely we want to sit down. We want to see who would be interested to follow this route, who would like to, you know, get involved year on year. So it's definitely, it's definitely in the pipeline. Now, tell us about this ride. It, it, it's, it sounds exciting in the same breath. It sounds very daunting. Tell us exactly um, where you're going to be stopping and uh, how often you're going to be making stops. And, you know, the, as you say, stopping in rural areas and, and just uh, imparting the knowledge and uh, um, what you have experienced so far. But just tell us about the ride in particular. All right, so the ride in particular, so as, you, as you mentioned earlier, we're going to get to Baybridge. Actually, we're getting there on Friday. And then we start riding on Saturday morning. We're riding approximately 160 k's a day. And we're trying to average about 25 kilometers an hour. So we're not treating this as a race in, in any, any sort. We literally just want to get to each destination comfortably. Um, Stuart's actually the head of um, where we're stopping in, in different parts of the country. So every about an hour and a half, two hours, um, we're going to be stopping, you know, grabbing some food, re, uh, rehydrating, and then... We just, you know, with regards to, um, and yeah, so sorry, with regards to finishing in Cape Town, so basically we are just going to be riding across the country and 
trying to in, uh, get involved with the communities, go to different Alzheimer's essays, um, facilities, and then having discussions, getting to know how everything is working from our side. We do have a documentary uh, filmmaker on board with us who will be videoing us um, throughout this whole adventure, which will be 15 days in total. Simon, I hope that we'll be able to touch base with you on your return uh, sometime in September and uh, just find out how the, tri- the, the, the ride was and uh, whether you, you, uh, you achieve what you're hoping to achieve at the start of this uh, tour that you're going to be taking upon yourselves. Thank you so much for joining Thanks. us. Lillian, just one thing, quickly, yes. if you don't mind. I just want to give a big thank you to Lovell Villages, who are our title sponsors. And then if anyone is interested to get involved with us, we have a Backer Buddy page which is called uh, Border to Beach, number two, Beach. Mm -hmm. And everyone can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you so much. Good luck. That's Simon Clayton, a business development manager at Flight Center Business Travel, joining us on the line. Channel Africa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean Noel Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Kenya will for the first time count intersex person during the upcoming national population census. For the first time, the census questionnaire will have three markers male, female and intersex. This follows a successful petition to the Kenyan government by intersex persons who are fighting for legal recognition. Intersex persons are individuals born with sex characteristics that do not fit the typical definitions of male or female bodies. Sarah Kimani reports from Nairobi. Um, when I was born, as usual, my parents could not tell I was born at home. And the first thing they did, they took me to a traditional medicine man. And the medicine man had not seen such kind of a thing again. And he said, okay, take your child home. And the easiest option is killing your child. It is a story that is repeated in several homes in Kenya. A story that James Karanja, whose legal documents still identify him as female, hopes will change when enumerators count him as well as other intersex persons in Kenya. Um, what I feel is a need for us to uh, be counted in this census is one, that we must at all costs try uh, to stop infanticide. Globally, up to 17% of children are born intersex, but most countries do not have the actual numbers of intersex persons. Intersex persons are in most cases ostracized. This weekend's national population census will for the first time recognize intersex persons. Vivian Nyarunda is a representative from the Kenya National Bureau of Statistics. We'll be able to identify how many, we'll be able to collect the numbers of the population that are intersex, and based on the analysis that will be carried out, we'll be able to have the other characteristics, their education levels, their labor force, where do they work, where do they live. While George Morara is a vice chairperson of the Kenya National Commission of Human Rights. When we have this golden opportunity to have them counted so that we can actually count them in the policies of this country, 
The census is over just one step. Lawmakers in the country are now working on a raft of new laws that will include intersex persons and also educate people to fight stigma against intersex persons. Milima Boma is a member of parliament in Kenya. Recognition of intersex people socially is even a bigger challenge because we are talking about stigma, we are talking about misinformation, we are talking about ignorance that then excludes uh, intersex people. That even when you have been recognized legally, people will still continue stigmatizing intersex people so nobody will come up forward even when you are legally recognized. While Isaac Maura is a senator in the country. This is about the rights of individuals who are also Kenyans, like any other. Kenya's current population is estimated at 47 million. The last census was conducted in 2009. For James and indeed all other intersex persons, when the final figure is collected, this time they too will have been counted. Sarah Kimani, SBC News, Kenya. It's 7.44 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Our economics updates up next with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. The International Monetary Fund has cautioned Zimbabwe's government against boosting wages for state workers after the introduction of a new currency pushed up inflation and reduced spending power to a tenth of what it was six months ago. The warning puts the IMF at odds with Finance Minister Mtuli Ngube, who said in an interview that he is in favor of boosting wages in both the public and private sectors to restore living standards and create consumer demand. Ngube is looking for ways to revive an economy that's forecast to contract this year for the first time in a decade. The IMF says in the six years to 2016, Zimbabwe boosted pay for its almost 400,000 civil servants to a level that makes up more than 90% of tax revenue compared with 40% in 2010. Uganda wants a more efficient system of moving cargo to help reduce costs on goods across East Africa. Kampala says delays in scanning cargo in transit as well as its verification, its overstay at container freight stations and corruption account for more than 20% of losses in the goods that Uganda trades in. The Ministry of Trade says more than 82% of Uganda imports pass through the port of Mombasa and that is why Uganda is engaging Kenya to address the logistics inefficiencies in import and export of goods which are estimated to cost 827 million US dollars to the Uganda business community and government every year. Dairy farmers around the world are at the mercy of climate change, trade wars, volatile milk prices and it's taking a toll. Like in the rest of the world, American dairy farmers are struggling to survive. Last year, nearly 3,000 dairy farms closed in the U.S., and that number continues to grow every day. The BBC's Angelica Casa reports on the dairy farming crisis in America. The Volcker family have just loaded up the last of their cows for auction. After 79 years, they're shutting down their dairy farm. And they're not alone. Nearly 700 dairy farms in Wisconsin have closed in the last year. There's been a shift towards larger farms, you know, but I always figured there'd be kind of a place for the smaller farms up until maybe three years ago or so. 
America's dairy land in crisis. More and more Wisconsin dairy farmers are going out of business. A few years ago, farmers were earning around 20 U.S. dollars for every 100 pounds of milk they produced. Now, they make about 16. Milk prices have been below average for years. The U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross has confirmed that a ban on the Chinese technology company Huawei will not come into force for another 90 days. This is the second time the implementation of the ban has been delayed since President Donald Trump's announcement in May. Ross says the delay is aimed at assisting existing customers. There's another 90 days for the U.S. telecom companies. Some of the rural companies are dependent on Huawei. So we're giving them a little more time to wean themselves off. But there are no specific licenses being granted for anything. South African small-scale farmers should start considering less conventional and lower-cost niches like rapid breeding in the face of constraints and uncertainties contributing to barriers for entry into agriculture. That's according to First National Bank economist Petunia Situmo. Rapid farming is less demanding, easy to maintain, and requires less land and resources, while the animals grow and multiply very quickly. Situmo has noted that it takes rabbits about 90 days to reach a production weight of 3.5 kilograms, while the gestation period is just 31 days. Domestic consumption of rabbit meat is currently below 20% compared to over 80% for the export market. In the financial indicators, the U.S. dollar is trading at 363.27 Nigerian Nara, 10.89 Budzana Pula, at 102.9 Kenyan Shilling, and at 13.3 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 4.2 Brazilian Heal, 66.69 Russian Ruble, 71.39 Indian Rupee, 7.5 Chinese Yuan, and 15.36 South African Rand. The dollar is also trading at 82 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Commodities, gold is at $1,496, platinum $850 per ounce, and the price of plant crude oil is at $59.72 a barrel. And that's how it's looking at this hour. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we begin with football news. South African men's national football team, the under-20 side, will finally get their 2019 Africa Games underway today when they play in Nigeria at the Stade Molay Stadium in Rabat in Morocco. Amajita's opening game against the host Morocco was postponed on Friday owing to registration problems that they had with the South African Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee, SASCOC. On the CAF website, the game is reflecting as Morocco having received a walkover, but SAFA has lodged an appeal against that outcome. Amajita Ketika coach Helman Mkelele has more on the state of readiness of his side. We are working very hard to make sure that the boys are ready for the game against uh, Nigeria since um, our game against Morocco was postponed. We just wanted to make sure that the boys um, remain focused. 
and they work hard and they remain fresh as well. So, yeah, we are grateful with the opportunity that we got yesterday in terms of making sure that uh, the team is ready for the Nigerian game. Yeah, then we'll just be taking it from there. This will be a third meeting between Amajida and Nigeria this year after having met twice at the AFCON under-20 earlier this year in Niger. Nigeria were held to a one all draw in the opening game against Burkina Faso. Mkalele says victory is possible today. It's going to be a very tough game because um, we all know that, you know, the, uh, any match between the two nations, you know, irrespective of the level, you know, it always be, it's always a, a tough encounter. Then we are just uh, anticipating, you know, a team that uh, is seeking revenge against, you know, us as we have no, we all know that we beat them uh, for the third place position. So it is a game that we're really looking forward to it and making sure that the boys uh, remain uh, focused and determined to go out there and perform and get the results. On to cricket news, Proteus first bowler Gahisa Rabada says he expects newly appointed Proteus interim director Inokungwe to translate this passion and professionalism from the Houding Lions to the national setup. Rabada, who has worked with Ngwe from under 19 level, believes that he's ready for the challenge and is looking forward to seeing him do well with the national team. They can expect that he's passionate and hardworking and that he really cares for what he does. And I think that he's, he, Enoch is not scared. He's a type that he embraces um, challenges. So I think this will be great for him. Um, obviously, he's in a different environment, so I think he would adapt to it. But fundamentally, I don't think he'll change. The Proteas are currently in camp at the Cricket South Africa Centre of Excellence in Pretoria with a new-look training squad for the three T20s and three test matches. Rabada, who has also returned from some much-needed rest, says he's pleased or it, it pleases him to see the likes of Lungingiti and Andre Knokje back. Lungi is good. He's been training. He's been in the gym. I'm not too sure exactly what he's been doing, but basically everyone is, is coming in now and performing their skills or trying to get their skills up to date. Yeah, it's, it's a gradual build-up. The break has uh, it's been, it's been quite nice, but now we have to get back into it slowly. And finally, with tennis news, rising American teenager Amanda Anisimova with his run from the U.S. Open following the death of her father and longtime coach Konstantin Anisimova. The cause of death was unknown. The world number 24 and 2017 U.S. Open junior champion looked to be in danger in flushing medals after she upset defending French Open champion Simona Halep to reach the semifinals of the tournament earlier this year. Konstantin and wife Olga moved to U.S. from Russia in 1998 and under his guidance, the 17-year-old rose up the WTA ranks. That's the sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, South Africa state capture inquiry marks one year anniversary. 
A search for missing South African teachers continues in Vietnam and Kenya to count intersex persons in upcoming census. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuto Ramagaza, technical producer Dumela Mugwena and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. And taking us to the top of the hour... For the news is Shoma Josie with a song titled Kona. Oh,